0: Hello, my name is Deborah Sidaway, and thank you for joining me again as we continue the story of divorce, a series exploring the stories of the bigamists, the bastards, the feminists, and the fornicators who helped shape the law of divorce in England as it exists today. In the last episode, we concluded the story of the first divorce in England, following the outrageous conduct of the Lady Anne Manners and the quest to bastardise her children who had not been fathered by her husband. It had been a scandal that titillated the whole of courtly society. And in today's episode, well, we're turning to the second divorce in England, and we're going to examine how it began to set a pattern that determined how divorces could be granted in a country which was still, in all but the rarest of cases, a non-divorcing society. Lord Rue's divorce didn't open the doors to divorce generally. In fact, it would take until 1698 before Parliament would decree a second divorce, around a quarter of a century after the first. In contrast to the divorce of Lord Rue's, this second divorce was far less contentious and therefore, somewhat unfortunately for us, a far less entertaining case. With Charles Gerard, the second Earl of Macclesfield, divorcing his wife with comparatively little drama. It is difficult to get a true picture of what happened to justify the divorce, as histor- historical records show that there was but a meagre account of it recorded. What is known is that Anne, the Countess of Macclesfield, had been living with her lover, Richard Savage, who was the fourth Earl Rivers, as though they were husband and wife, and had been for some years having two Bible or bastard children together. It is apparent from the evidence of the many witnesses brought before the House that both husband and wife wanted the divorce, and that there was a degree of contrivance between them to try and facilitate a favourable outcome from Parliament. Parliament, meanwhile, was concerned that they were being asked to pronounce in favour of a divorce, despite the fact that the Earl of Macclesfield had not yet received his separation from bed and board from the ecclesiastical courts, nor had he sought damages in a criminal conversation suit against his wife's lover. We will return to the criminal conversation suit later in the series, because it would come to play a critical role in divorce petitions going forward. For present purposes, however, it was the lack of a finding from the ecclesiastical courts that was the predominant concern. With both Lords Halifax and Rochester joining together to record their disapproval, stating dissentient, because we conceive that this is the first bill of that nature that hath passed where there was not a sentence of divorce first obtained in the spiritual court, which we look upon as an ill precedent and may be of ill consequence in the future. These concerns were very quickly put to bed by Lord Summers, who noted that they had been deliberately considered, and stated that the want of a spiritual sentence ought, in his opinion, to form no obstacle to relief, where the case, on its merits, was redundantly established. Now, reading between the lines, it is difficult to escape the suspicion that the Earl of Macclesfield and Lord Summers were very good friends. Um, as despite the concerns about the possible collusion between the Earl of Macclesfield and his wife and the lack of a bed-and-board divorce from the ecclesiastical courts, Parliament granted the Earl the divorce that he wanted. So that was the second divorce. There had been decades between the first and the second divorce, but the third divorce would come just three years later, in 1701, and it was political concerns that once more dominated. So, for the story of the third divorce in England, let me take you back to 1692. William III, the son of the Dutch William II, Prince of Orange, was on the throne as king, the last English monarch to take the throne by force of arms, ruling alongside Mary II, his wife and first cousin, who was also the daughter of the deposed James II. And scandal was brewing once more. This time, it was the marriage of Henry Howard, the 7th Duke of Norfolk, that had become the subject of gossip and rampant speculation. Like the ruse case that had preceded it, there was much at stake. In fact, there was probably more at stake for the Howard family than what there had been for the Manners family, simply because the Howard family not only controlled vast swathes of wealth, but also the most illustrious dukedom in England as compared to Lord Ruse, who merely had hold of an earldom at the time of his divorce. The Duke of Norfolk had married Lady Mary Mordaunt, the only child and heiress of Henry Mordaunt, the second Earl of Peterborough, in 1677. He was Protestant, she was Catholic, and they lived in a time where religious differences had destabilised the whole of the nation once more. It was not a promising basis upon which a happy and contented marital life could be achieved, and it was not long at all before Lady Mary strayed. Her affair became notorious, for she had taken up with a Dutch soldier, a disreputable gambler by the name of John Germain, a man rumoured to be the illeg- illegitimate son of William the Second, Prince of Orange, and therefore the half brother of the king. The Duke of Norfolk responded to his wife's adultery by introducing a bill into the House of Lords, whereby he denounced his wife and asked that his marriage be declared void by the authority of Parliament and that he be permitted to remarry, on account that he hath no issue nor can have any probable expectation of posterity to succeed him in his honours, dignities and estate unless the said marriage be declared void. There were, however, a number of legal and technical difficulties with the bill. The first of these was that unlike Lord Ruse, the Duke of Norfolk had not taken his cause to the ecclesiastical courts to get a bed-and-board divorce, so did not have a legal separation that was sanctioned by the Church. This was largely because the Duke of Norfolk could not go to the spiritual courts with clean hands. When it came to adultery... He was just as guilty as his duchess, having tarnished his own reputation with his sexual activities with women other than his wife, and the bishops were not known to look favourably on petitions for a bed-and-board divorce from adulterous hypocrites. Another difficulty was that witnesses who could testify as to the infidelity of the duchess with John Germain seemed to be disappearing. John Germain, that rather resourceful lover of the Duchess, had been smuggling the witnesses out of England, deposited, depositing them in his home country of the Netherlands for the duration of the trial against him, because there was going to be a trial against him, even if it was not before the church. The Duke of Norfolk had brought a suit against him in the King's Bench for criminal conversation. A suit for criminal conversation, or the crim-con suit as it was more popularly known, was to become a key component of gaining a parliamentary divorce. Despite its name, a suit for criminal conversation was not prosecuted criminally, but was a civil suit for the recovery of damages, heard before a special jury of gentlemen of fortune. It was brought by a husband against the lover of his wife, and was meant to compensate the husband for the losses he suffered as a consequence of his wife's infidelity, or, as it was euphemistically labelled, the loss of the comfort and society of his wife. It was a suit for the upper classes, Indeed, as Thomas Erskine, the first Baron Erskine who would later go on to become a Lord Chancellor, who was renowned as an orator given to displays of drama in court and for speaking with exquisite beauty, once remarked while he was defending the alleged seducer in a crimcon suit, an injury of this nature is more severely felt by a man of sensibility and honourable birth than it can be by a person of a different description. In a crim concert, the wife would play no part in the proceedings, even if it was her virtue and her reputation that were effectively on trial, for the law did not recognise her as an individual person separate from her husband. Indeed, one judge described the seduction of another man's wife as the highest invasion of property. The rationale underlying the suit for criminal conversation was that the virtue of a wife had a price and that her value was diminished by her sexual strain. The crim concert was to delineate the undeniable fact that a wife was considered to be property, with a financial value attached to that. Needless to say, there was no corresponding action that a betrayed wife could bring against her husband's mistress. A wife was deemed to have suffered no corresponding financial loss when her husband slept with another woman. As one woman, Sarah Chapone, wrote in 1735 in her humble address to the legislature, which she called The Hardships of the English Laws in Relation to Wives with an explanation of the original curse of subjection passed upon the woman. Our law gives the husband the entire disposal of his wife's person but she does not seem to retain any property in his. He may recover damages on any man who shall invade his property in her, but she cannot recover any damages from any woman who shall invade her property in him. The Duke of Norfolk's crim consuit became the talk of the town, especially because he demanded an incredible £10,000 in damages worth approximately £1.2 million in real terms today. Despite concerns over the lapse of time between the Duke discovering his wife's affair with John Germain and bringing the suit against him, and the lack of evidence to support his allegations, the jury did find in favour of the Duke. However, they awarded the Duke the derisory sum of only £66 in damages, worth just a little under £8,000 today. It was hardly a comprehensive victory for the duke, yet armed with this finding in his favour, the Duke of Norfolk renewed his petition in Parliament for a divorce. However, he failed once more, following the arguments advanced for the Duchess by her lawyers that Parliament had no business passing a bill for a divorce unless the ecclesiastical courts had already granted a bed and board divorce. And despite the earlier precedent of the Earl of Maclefield's divorce, It was this argument that swayed the majority of the Lords to vote against the Duke of Norfolk, if only by six votes. They all knew that the House would be made to look a fool if it passed a bill granting a divorce and the ecclesiastical courts later made a contradictory finding and refused the bed-and-board divorce. The matter was laid to rest for a number of years, during which the Duchess of Norfolk carried on her affair with John Germain, while the Duke of Norfolk bit his thumb at his detractors by openly bringing his mistress to his palace at Norfolk for the Assizes, inviting the cream of Norwich society to a great ball that he intended to host with her. His behaviour, however, had become so scurrilous that according to the Dean of Norwich, no one attended the ball. The dean commented that it would be impossible for anyone having regard to their reputation to attend the soiree, and that the duke carried himself as cattle without shame or modesty. In 1700, the duke tried once more to achieve a divorce, but this time, by some stroke of luck, he seemed to have located the missing witnesses who could testify against the duchess. It also seemed that these witnesses had shifted their allegiances from the Duchess to the Duke. Now, this change of heart might have been because the Duke was willing to offer to pay them more for their words than what the Duchess and her lover had been willing to pay them for their silence. However, it is more likely that the witnesses returned to England at the behest of the Duchess, as now she too wanted a divorce so that she would be free to marry John Germain. Appearing before the House of Lords with two witnesses willing to give testimony on his behalf, the Duke of Norfolk's counsel spoke eloquently of the religious concerns, particularly that of the Protestant Duke suffering the risk of being succeeded by John Germain's issue or depriving him of the expectation of leaving his honours, offices and estates to a Protestant heir. John Germain was, of course, a Catholic like the Duchess, and there was a real fear that the wealth of the Duke of Norfolk would end up in the hands of any progeny of the Catholic Duchess and her Catholic lover. There were some half-hearted protests remaining that the bill should not be passed in the absence of a pronouncement from the ecclesiastical courts for a bed-and-board divorce, and there was still some discomfort that the Duke had also been guilty of adultery himself in direct contrast to the bill that had been passed for Lord Ruse. The Duke of Norfolk responded to these concerns as only an unrepentant, unfaithful man could, by reminding the house that a man's infidelity was all but irrelevant because a man by his folly brings no spurious issue to inherit the land of his wife, but a woman deprives her husband of any legitimate issue. This... Only the third divorce that would go on to be recorded in Parliament would enshrine the sexual double standard that would remain as a manacle around the necks of women for centuries. We will return to this sexual double standard later. But for now, suffice to say, the House accepted the argument that there was a fundamental difference between the adultery of a husband and the adultery of the wife. These rumblings of concern having been put to bed and with the threat of a Catholic inheriting the title and estates of the Dukedom of Norfolk, in the end, it was the religious issue that decided the matter, and in 1701, the Duke of Norfolk finally achieved his divorce. But it would prove to be a pyrrhic victory for the hypocritical Duke, and it was certainly a costly one. The House, perhaps to demonstrate that they did not approve of the Duke of Norfolk's own adultery, ordered the Duke to return the £10,000 dowry he had received at the time of the marriage. This money ended up in the hands of the wife he had just divorced, as her father had died some three years earlier and she inherited the Mordaunt estate. The enriched Duchess, in turn, went on to marry her lover, John Germain, meaning that much of her property became his, although, as was usual in the moneyed and entitled classes, much of the wealth of the Duchess was held in trusts, so as to protect them from the greed of husbands. The Duke of Norfolk, meanwhile, died before he had an opportunity to remarry and sire heirs, Despite all the years of pursuing a divorce in Parliament and the efforts made by the House of Lords to ensure otherwise, his estate was indeed inherited by Catholics. The Duchess died some three years later, also childless, leaving her second husband her vast estate. John Germain, that notorious gamester, had pulled off the biggest gamble of his life, taking up with a married Duchess Joining with her to stand against the reluctant machinery of parliamentary process and divorce law in England, and after securing his married lover as his own wife, acquiring a large fortune to which an illegitimate Dutch soldier should never have even dared to hope to attain. Parliament had now granted three divorces. And it was starting to become apparent that an act of Parliament was the only mechanism to loosen the bonds of matrimony between a husband and a wife. And as a gradual trickle of aggrieved spouses started coming to the House with petitions for a divorce, it soon became evident that there was something of a problem. For Parliament appeared to be taking on a role for which it was never intended, to be a court presiding over matrimonial issues. What resulted was the start of a campaign in favour of the creation of a judicial system to arbitrate over matrimonial matters with the power to pronounce a divorce. It was a campaign that would continue to a greater or lesser extent until 1857, when such a judicial system would finally be introduced. A number of anonymous pamphlets started appearing from 1700, with one urging that divorce should be the punishment which follows adultery. Another anonymous publication pointed to the huge expense and the considerable delay involved in taking a divorce through Parliament, noting that the number of years that had elapsed before a pronouncement of of divorce in the Ruse and Norfolk cases was five and eight years, respectively. Parliament was also concerned about their role in divorce issues particularly as they were being asked to pass bills for divorce in cases where there was not even land and titles at risk of being inherited by this spurious issue of an unfaithful wife. One such case was a divorce petition presented by a Mr. John Lucnor in 1690, whose wife Jane had abandoned him and was living with another man, a certain Mr. William Montague, with whom she had children. There was no love lost between Lucnor and Montague, even before Montague ran off with Lucnor's wife. The men were fierce political rivals, with Lucnor a Tory and Montague a Whig, although both men's political affiliations seemed to be somewhat fluid in the uncertainty and turmoil following the glorious revolution of 1688. Lucnor was returned for the borough of Midhurst, while Montague had sat for three weeks for Stockbridge before he was ignominiously expelled for bribery. Despite the unsavoury character of the lover of his wife in this instance, Parliament agreed to bastardise the children, but it refused to grant a divorce. Lucnor, however, did manage to exact his vengeance from his wife's lover. He bought a criminal conversation suit against Montague and was awarded £6,500 in damages, approximately £780,000 in real terms today, a sum that the unfortunate Montague was unable to pay. Montague was cast into the King's Bench Prison for failure to meet his debt. Yet despite this, he managed to be returned for Stockbridge in the general election of 1690. Montague then petitioned the house for his release from prison on the basis that he had been legally elected to parliament and therefore enjoyed the privilege of parliament and should be freed to allow his service, service in the house Lucknow objected to this and the house seemed to throw its collective arms up in the air and took no action leaving Montague to languish and on the 2nd of April 1691 Montague died in prison This, of course, did not help Lucnor, for he was still burdened with an adulterous wife and was therefore unable to remarry. When Lucnor finally died in 1707, his estate was left to a distant kinsman. As his wife's children had been bastardised, they had no claim on his estate. It was a rather unsatisfactory ending to a rather unsavoury affair, and all in all, the sordid love entanglements of two opportunistic, scrabbling politicians was not the sort of case that Parliament wanted to be involved in. In 1702, following on from the Duke of Norfolk's divorce, the House of Lords, as a matter of procedural policy, made a standing order that no bill of divorce could proceed without the petitioner first having gone to the ecclesiastical courts for a divorce, a mansa et toro, or the bed and board separation. It also, as a matter of principle, indicated that it would refuse to consider any bills of divorce other than those presented on behalf of men of rank and wealth, who were childless and in danger of having the progeny of of their adulterous wives inherit their titles and property. The end result was that of the successful petitions for a divorce made to Parliament from the first parliamentary divorce of Lord Roos to seventeen fifty, six of the petitioners were titled while a further three held the courtesy title of esquire but were usually connected to the peerage as either younger sons of the eldest son of a peer or through the office that they held all thirteen were wealthy and all were men adultery would be the beating heart of every parliamentary divorce going forward just as it had been in the case of Lord And with these early successful divorce petitions to Parliament in the first half of the 18th century, a procedural pattern was set that would remain for the next one and a half centuries. Any husband seeking a divorce would first have to go to the ecclesiastical courts to obtain a divorce amongst et-toro. They would then need to bring an action for criminal conversation against the alleged lover of their wife particularly after Parliament ordered in 1809 that every bill of divorce must be accompanied by a transcript of the crim trial, and only then could they turn to Parliament. It has been estimated that the costs of achieving a parliamentary divorce was something in the region of £700, or around £31,000 in real terms today. As a consequence, divorce was only available to those who had both the knowledge and the means to take on this three-staged, long, expensive and cumbersome process, usually the wealthy, the powerful, the titled or the influential. And divorce was also restricted to men. Before 1800, only one woman had petitioned for a divorce, and her petition was rejected almost out of hand. However, As the lights dimmed on the 18th century, and the dawn of the 19th century started to brighten, the inherent unfairness of a system which precluded most of the population started to be challenged. It would be challenged in literature, in the press, and through popular protests against the archaic and unfair laws of divorce. Even a cursory examination of the divorce laws would demonstrate a huge disparity between the wealthy and the poor, as well as the entrenched sexual double standard in a legal system that failed to even recognize the separate legal identity of a married woman. The 19th century would see changes to English society on an unprecedented scale, with rapid industrialization and mass migration into the cities changing the landscape of the nation forever. Alongside this, many changes would be made to try and modernize the antiquated and confusing legal system that governed the land. Criminal law would be reformed, for example, and a modern system of company law would be introduced. One area of the law that would also see reform was divorce law, although that would not be until 1857. But the wheels of this change began to turn at the end of the 18th century, when, To the horror of the House of Lords and the legal profession as a whole, a woman petitioned for a divorce. Her name was Mrs Jane Addison. And to justify her petition for a divorce, she alleged that her husband was guilty of adulterous incest. Was she to get her divorce? Find out next time in the story of divorce. Thank you for listening. My name is Deborah Sidway, and remember that you can follow the podcast series on Twitter at, at story of Divorce. Please join me again next time as we turn to the story of Mrs. Jane Addison.